our text for this morning is Acts chapter 21, verse 37, through chapter 22, verse 16. Acts chapter 21, 37, through 22, 16. This is a longer section than usual this morning. Part of it is a retelling of Paul's conversion experience, the conversion we read about back in chapter 9. The situation now at present is this. After arriving in Jerusalem, Paul went up to the temple, and here he is recognized by certain unbelieving Jews that have come from Asia to celebrate the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost. And they, upon seeing Paul, they, they stir up the gathered crowds in the temple courts against him. Uh, the commotion draws the attention of the Roman commander who is stationed in barracks near the temple. And he immediately comes running down the steps from the barracks. He brings a number of his soldiers and he runs into the mob and he prevents further harm from happening to Paul. And he then has Paul arrested. And so we're starting our reading today in Acts chapter 21 with verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, chapter 22, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
This is the word of the Lord. Imagine taking a long-anticipated vacation to the Bahamas with your closest friends. Sound appealing? Three men and their wives did just that back in August of this year. However, only their wives made it home. Sometime in, in the night during that vacation, tragedy struck. It happens to about 430 people a year in the United States. It often occurs while a person is sleeping. You can't see it coming. You cannot smell it. You don't even know it's there. Carbon monoxide poisoning. It's a lot like ignorance. People are rarely aware of their own ignorance. But ignorance of spiritual matters is not only dangerous, it's deadly. Paul here is speaking to the crowd to try to dispel ignorance. The commander, he has no idea who Paul is or what he's done to draw such violence down upon himself. He does know that he will not tolerate unrest. And this commander, who we later find out is named Lysias, he wonders aloud who Paul is, and he makes a comment that makes sense if we understand some background information. So we find two questions in verses 37 and 38. And the first of these is, do you know Greek? Paul's use of that language surprised him. And the reason for that is related to the second question, which immediately follows the first. You are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. No, Paul was not that man. Within very recent history, a certain man from Egypt managed to convince about 4,000 4, Jewish revolutionaries to follow him. The assassins, as they were known, or as they were called, were a violent political group who opposed the rule of Rome over them, but they also opposed any other Jews who collaborated with Rome. And they were known to carry daggers hidden in the folds of their robes, which they used to stab these Roman sympathizers in very crowded areas. And in that way, such as an area like the temple court where a lot of people were, they could slip away quickly before they were caught. The Egyptian in question, he raised a, a small army of these revolutionaries. He brought them together. And they then attempted to attack the fortress barracks that Lysias, the commander and his troops, had just ran down from that was sitting right next to the temple. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, he writes about this incident with the Egyptian. And he, he says, the governor Felix met him with his Roman soldiers while all the people assisted him in his attack upon them, insomuch that when it came to a battle, the Egyptian ran away with a few others while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive. Though most of the followers of the Egyptian were killed, he did manage to slip away. And now the commander based on how ferociously the, the mob is beating Paul, suspects the Egyptian has returned and has been recognized. The Romans, they, they gave the Jews a lot of freedom to exercise their religion. 
But when it came to civil unrest of any sort, there was zero tolerance. Paul's command of the Greek language, it took the commander off guard. The Egyptian terrorist in question, he would not have known Greek, at least not the, the proper and the polished Greek that Paul used. Paul, he quickly puts the commander's assumption to rest in his response, verse 39, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And this answer, it instantly changed Lysias' whole outlook of him. First of all, he learned Paul was not an Egyptian at all, but in fact, he was a Jew. Secondly, he learned Paul was from Tarsus, a city that was renowned for its high culture and for its highly educated citizenry. So this obviously was not the leader of the violent, zealous freedom fighters. Based on his credentials, Lysias gave Paul permission to speak to the crowd. Surely there was a misunderstanding that could be cleared up if, if Paul were only given the opportunity to present his case. So here's Paul. He's standing on the steps overlooking the temple courts. He's bloody. He's bruised. He's got these chains that are hanging from his wrist. He's surrounded by numerous soldiers and a very angry crowd. The air is charged with tension. Adrenaline is still pumping. Still, Paul is not thinking about his own safety. But he's thinking about the opportunity that's before him. He's not going to pass up the chance to witness to the transforming work of the Lord Jesus in his life. He also believes, uh, perhaps naively, that if he can present the facts the unreasonable anger of his attackers will subside. Paul is a lot like you and me in this regard. He, he believes an appeal to logic and to reason will diffuse the situation. If they will just listen to my explanation, then all of this can be cleared up. Of course, any of you, probably all of you at some point, who've been misunderstood or wrongly accused know that this is not always the case. Our modern-day equivalent of the public square is the Internet, specifically social media platforms. These are the places where views are expressed, where opinions are, are aired, where accusations are made, uh, where anger is discharged. The person on the other end of the screen, you know, they can't obviously physically reach you, but they can certainly verbally tear you down. Sticks and stones do break bones. Words also hurt. They do. Either in physical interactions or virtual ones, you should try to clear up confusion when it arises. Just, just realize that there are other motives at work in your opponent's resolution probably not being one of them. And so you might not get very far with your careful arguments or your appeals to reason. And this does not mean you shouldn't try, as we see here from Paul's example. But in every interaction, even the ones where you're defending your position or your reputation, keep in mind that you are first and foremost representing Jesus Christ. You proving yourself right, even if you're 
convinced that your position is firmly grounded in biblical truth is not the goal. The goal is in all things to exalt the name of Jesus. So yes, speak truth. Speak wisely. Speak convincingly. Just realize that it is not typically careful arguments or solid truth that moves people, at least not in the moment. It is your attitude. It is the way in which you handle yourself, which will in time vindicate the truth that you speak in God's time. In the moment, your peaceful and your gentle approach is disarming. It's, it's easy to lose your temper with somebody who's lashed out at you. But listen to Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. We also have the words of James, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Paul's defense is a model of speaking with wisdom from above. We learn three things from his speech in the temple courts. Three things about confronting misunderstanding. We all confront that from time to time, right? First of all, know your audience. Know who you're talking to. Secondly, address their ignorance. And thirdly, present truth. So first of all, know your audience. Know who's before you. Having obtained permission from Lysias, Paul begins to speak to the crowd. And the text says he did so in verse 2, the Hebrew dialect. This is not the pure Hebrew of the Old Testament, but this is the Aramaic dialect spoken by the common people of Israel at the time. So it has some Hebrew mixed in, but it's not completely Hebrew as you would find written in the Old Testament. This was enough to cause a deeper silence to fall over the crowd. Uh, keep in mind that many people involved in or witnessing the violence against Paul did not know who he was, did not know why he was being targeted. So for him to speak in the language of the common man, it made an impression. We perhaps have a hard time in America in our pretty much monolingual uh, society, one language society, that is English. We maybe have a hard time understanding this, but in a place like Nigeria, there are over 500 languages spoken in a country the size of Texas and Oklahoma. And out of those 500 languages, there are three major languages that are referred to as trade languages. In the north central part of Nigeria, where, where I lived, where I ministered, Hausa was that regional trade language. So no matter what tribe a person was from, they learned Hausa. And that way, he or she could communicate with the greatest number of people. Hausa was the language of business transactions. It was the language of the market where people from different tribes came together to buy and sell. You needed one language to communicate with. I knew that if I learned Hausa, I could effectively communicate with the majority of people. 
And simply speaking to someone in a language they know or understand, especially as a stranger, like I was, it gets their attention. And it goes a long way towards endearing yourself to him or to her. Paul connected with his audience by using the language that most knew the best. It's a simple thing, but it's significant. He also connected with them by addressing them as brothers and fathers. Verse 22. These were the people who were just trying to, just trying to kill him. Brothers and fathers. Paul doesn't stand up and, and start to chew them out for their bad behavior. But he does respil, uh, appeal to them respectfully. How you address someone goes a long way toward dampening those hostilities. If you go on the attack the moment that you're able to speak to get a word in, you're only going to raise an already high temperature, right? These are Paul's kinsmen. These are his relatives. These are his fellow Jews for, for whom Paul has a heart. Brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Paul connected with his audience by not returning hostile words for hostile words. He was polite. He was polite. Next, we see that Paul found common ground. He knows his audience. In verse 3, we read, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So Paul reveals that he's not only Jewish, but he was educated as a rabbi, as a teacher, under a man named Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel was very well known and very much respected by the Jews of Jerusalem. He was the one, if his name rings a bell, who advised the Sanhedrin back in chapter 5 of Acts against persecuting the apostles after they had been arrested. He said, if, if they continue to oppose the apostles, you may even be found fighting against God. This is that Gamaliel, who stood up as an unbeliever for the apostles. Mentioning that he was trained by Gamaliel, oh, oh, by the way, it instantly gave Paul credibility. So we've already seen how Paul does not begin by attacking his opponent, and now he takes this a step further and he compliments them. The next thing Paul slips in, this is also found in verse 3, is how he is zealous for God just as you all are today. The charges that have been brought against Paul, that he is desecrating the temple, that he is teaching people to reject the law of Moses, they are obviously not true, they are false. But Paul does acknowledge the zeal, the passion for the law and for the temple that's demonstrated by these people that are accusing him. They're wrong in their assessment, but their desire to honor God is commendable. And Paul acknowledges their zeal. Even when you strongly disagree with someone, you can probably find something for which to commend him or her. Not necessarily easy. And I'm not talking about mere flattery. I'm not talking about being fake. I'm talking about sincerely acknowledging something about your opponent's motives or object that might be coming from a sincere place. In this sense, Paul realized 
the unbelieving Jews trying to silence him are driven by zeal for God. Of course, it's misplaced zeal. And we understand that, that passion alone means nothing. There are people so passionate about their wrong perception of God that they'll blow themselves up and others with them. Many people are passionately wrong. Still, if you can find something worth acknowledging in their position or in their motives, do it. Know your audience. Know who you're talking to. Paul himself, he understands misplaced passion. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 22, Paul begins to describe his former zeal for God. That was misplaced zeal. As well as his former twisted interpretation of God's will. He's not letting his audience off the hook by saying these things. He's actually, he's actually baiting the hook. He's drawing them in. He was one time just like them. Persecuted believers in Jesus, even went so far as to put them in prison, had some put to death. He, he had the authority from the highest levels of Jewish leadership to do this. Traveled to other cities in his determination to arrest Christians. Passionate, zealous, focused. Paul is not concocting a story in order to fit the taste of his audience. He's not playing to the crowd. But he is connecting with them, and he's speaking the truth in love. Hey, hey, I was just like you. I used to be even more gung-ho against Jesus' followers than you are. But something changed. And he's about to explain how he got from there to here. Paul knew his audience. He connected with them through a common language. He addressed them politely. And let me just say that, that politeness has completely gone to the wayside. You've probably noticed that. It's as if, especially on social media, people go out of their way to insult their opponents, to get their digs in as early as possible. We're Christians. We have to be better than that. We have to be, be better than that. Paul, he, he built some credibility. And he did so simply by speaking with respect. It goes a long way. When you're dealing with someone who opposes you, who's insulted you, or, or who seems determined to tear you down before others, make the effort, and it is an effort, make the effort to know your audience. Who are you speaking to? Where are they coming from? What might possibly be motivating them to say or do what they've said? We're done. Now, understanding where somebody is coming from does not mean you agree with him or her. Taking the time to acknowledge any similarities or common ground, however, will pave the way for the truth that you speak. Know who you're talking to. Secondly, address their ignorance. Address those areas where they are ignorant. Just because the person who set themselves up against you is speaking out of ignorance does not mean that you should do that as well. Paul had been accused of bringing a Gentile into a forbidden area of the temple, which he did not do. He'd been accused of teaching other Jews to abandon the law of Moses. He certainly did not do that either. 
His opponents, they, they spoke out of ignorance. Ignorance generates fear. And fearful, fearful people, they, they act irrationally. Fearful people, they also lash out in anger. Beating Paul, uh, certainly an angry reaction, I would say. You can avoid responding ignorantly and avoid responding angrily. You can avoid responding to your accuser in the way they initially came after you. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. In order to avoid an anger response that's rooted in fear, or rooted in ignorance, know your subject. Know what you're talking about. Paul does this in a few ways. He demonstrates this in a few ways. How does he know? How do we know that he knows what he's talking about? Well, first he mentions the law. The main reason so many unbelieving Jews are stirred up against Paul is because he is accused of rejecting God's law. And so Paul addresses this matter. In verse 3, he states he was educated strictly according to the law of our fathers. Paul knows the law. He knows what he's talking about. He doesn't avoid the elephant in the room. Over in verse 12, chapter 22, when Paul is recounting his conversion experience, he points out that Ananias, the one who baptized him, was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Ananias, he was a follower of Jesus, yet he continued to observe the law of Moses. He was not only respected among the Christians in Damascus, he was also respected and highly regarded by the unbelieving Jews there as well. Ananias did not reject the law of Moses. He simply stopped relying on the law to earn him favor with God. He trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, for reconciliation to God, not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And then he went on and he honored God by observing the teaching that was given to Israel by the God of Israel. So Paul, he's addressing what is relevant to the charges that are leveled against him. Addressing the question of the law's application to Jews who chose to follow Jesus. We, we saw him do that previously. So when you're addressing accusations, when you're trying to clear up misunderstandings, it is good to know what you yourself are talking about, which maybe is fairly obvious. But I say that because too often we as Christians, we do a poor job of communicating that we know what we're talking about. We just argue to argue. It's not the Christian way. And then in the process, these facts, they get left behind in the, in the smog of expressing emotionally driven opinions. It not only matters how you communicate, but it also matters what you communicate. Paul is, is following a thread throughout his speech. He's reminding his audience of their own concerns. And he's doing it in such a way that he himself expresses knowledge of his subject. Simply put, for you, be prepared. Be prepared. 
think through what you're going to say. That good rule when you're responding to an email in anger, type it out and then put it aside for a couple of days. Read back over it. You'll probably realize that it's probably not good to send it in that form. Think through what you're going to say. If your opponent is being unreasonable, if they're being illogical, that's all the more reason for you to be reasonable and logical. I'm not saying you have to be an expert, but at least take the time to know about the subject you're addressing. Educate yourself. Know what you're talking about. When I lived in Nigeria, I wasn't intentionally pulling illustrations from Nigeria this morning. They were just coming to mind. I, I employed a, a couple of young men from the village that would help out around the farm, around the, the homestead. Uh, we also used their employment as an opportunity to, to teach them work and trade skills. But it almost never fell that desire or Patrick went to show a young man something that he had never done before using a hand planer comes to mind. You got the picture that, that he would jump up and he would start trying to use that planer before I was even finished explaining what he's supposed to be doing. So I would pause, I would watch him for a moment and I would wait until the young man in question had sufficiently proven that he had no idea what he was doing. Evident from the fact that the wood was not getting planed. I don't know what was happening to it, but it was not getting planed. I would then use that as another opportunity to point out that you have to know how to do something before you can actually do it. I know this is common sense stuff this morning, but it's good to be reminded of it. If you go to defend yourself or to try to clear up misunderstandings before you even understand what those misunderstandings are, it's only going to create more confusion. Ignorance begets ignorance. And the more ignorance that's flying around, the more anger that's generated. Paul demonstrates that he knows what he is talking about. And he does that also through the way in which he develops his presentation. What does he do? Well, he, he shares his own story. And in doing so, he draws attention to how his own ignorance of God was corrected. Look at verse 7, chapter 22. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul had asked, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. In his ignorance, Paul did not realize that as he attacked and imprisoned the followers of Jesus, he was actually persecuting Jesus himself. Look at verse 14. Ananias, whom Paul was led to see in his blindness, said to him, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a message from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. Paul was ignorant of God's plan for him. Why was he ignorant of God's plan? Because he was ignorant of what Jesus' death and resurrection meant for him. That, by the way, is how you discover God's plan. You want to know God's plan? Then get into a right relationship with God through the way that he has provided. Jesus Christ, 
when you understand and receive God's plan to rescue you from your sins and from yourself, then you will be in a position to receive how God plans to work through you to help lead others to find their way to Christ as well. And I guarantee you that's God's plan for you, to use you to lead others to Jesus. But how he's going to do that in your life, it'll be different from how he did it in Paul's life, but he does have a specific plan for you. God corrected Paul's misunderstanding by giving him knowledge of his will. Verse 15, you will be a witness for him to all people. Through Ananias, God corrected Paul's misunderstanding. And so now Paul, in retelling his story of God clearing up his misunderstandings, is seeking to clear up the ignorance of his audience. Look ahead at verse 17, chapter 22, verse 17. While praying in the temple at one point, in this very place that he now stands before his accusers, the Lord said to him in a vision, this was years before, hurry up and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. God revealed to Paul that it was time for him to begin in earnest his ministry to the Gentiles. God correcting his misunderstandings, enlightening his ignorance. So that's what Paul's trying to do. He's clearing out these misunderstandings. He knows the areas where his audience are ignorant. And so he also proceeds to give them the facts. And that's why we see him present truth. He presents truth. Most of what Paul is going to share is couched in his testimony. It's through his testimony that he is sharing it. This is his conversion story. As I've told you all before, every Christian has a conversion story. If you are a Christian, at some point in the past, you were converted. You were born from above. You received spiritual life. You went from darkness to light. I guarantee you that your conversion story is different than mine. It's different than Paul's. It's different than the person sitting next to you. It's your conversion story. It's the account of how you encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in a profoundly and eternally life-changing way. Paul's retelling this time is a little different from his retelling in chapter 26, which we'll see uh, coming. He'll tell this again. But it's different here. And it's different because Paul, like you, focuses on different elements of the story depending on the audience and depending on the time frame and depending on the leading of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen how this time in his retelling, Paul emphasizes the law of God and its application to a Jewish believer. This has been the hot topic since Paul returned to Jerusalem. Paul also emphasizes in his retelling of his call to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So this explains why his own observation of the law of Moses or lack thereof is different in different settings. 
your conversion story, how you tell it, it's going to be different depending on the situation. What Paul specifically focuses on, wherever and whenever he shares his testimony, is truth. He focuses on truth. So you, you disarm your audience by speaking in love. You dispel ignorance by understanding where your audience is coming from. But the greatest defense in your arsenal is truth. It's also the greatest offense. If ignorance is carbon monoxide, then truth is the carbon monoxide detector. That thing that, that wakes you up and that gets you out of the house. We understand that truth is found in the Word of God. Truth is simply reality according to God who created reality. He gets to define truth because He is the creator of truth. That makes sense. There's not my truth. There's not your truth. There's not His truth. There's not her truth. There's only God's truth. Truth by its very definition is limited. There can only be one truth. The mantra today that you often hear is, live your truth. That's horrible advice. Don't follow it. That kind of advice leads people to do whatever they feel like doing. If it feels good to me, it must be true. Your truth might be that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage or to have sex with someone who's not your spouse, but we know truth according to God's word clearly denies that either of those are acceptable. We all see what's happening around us when people think they determine truth according to their own thoughts or their own feelings or their own ideas. We're now told to accept it as true that people are born the wrong gender, that they're trapped in the wrong bodies, or that you can determine your own gender quite apart from what is clearly a biological reality. Biological realities, by the way, are God's truth. He knew what he was doing when he put you in the body that he put you in. Whenever people create their own truth, it leads to a denial of reality. And this has disastrous effects on the soul. Living by lies brings death. Ignorance of the truth is deadly. But thank God, we don't have to guess. God tells the truth. His reality is found in His Word. When Paul shared his testimony, he shared truth. He told of what God had done in his own life. What is a conversion story but the account of how the truth of God as revealed in the Word of God became a reality to you through an encounter with Jesus Christ? Let me say that again. A conversion story is the account of how the truth of God, as revealed in the Word of God, became a reality to you through an encounter with Jesus Christ. People like to hear stories. People will be much quicker to listen to you share your story than they will to listen to you preach. 
And that's coming from a preacher. As Paul shared about his encounter with Jesus Christ, he included all the necessary elements. Listen for these. Notice what's here in the text. He talked about his life before Jesus. Verse 4, I persecuted the way. He realized that he was a sinner, that his sins had personally offended God. Verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? He talked about how he felt deep conviction over his present state. I could not see, verse 11, I came into Damascus being led by the hand to those, by those who were with me. We know that Paul was blind for three days, neither eating nor drinking, and that Paul heard the call of God upon his life. Verse 14, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. What was that like for you? That call. Have you heard it? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you heard it? Finally, Paul talks about how he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 16. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. This is an effective way to share truth. Share how the Lord Jesus changed your life. Your story is the truth of God according to the word of God at work in your conversion experience. You bring your life and line with God's reality and God wants to use the story of how that happened. It may not be a dramatic story. It's probably not. Most people's aren't. Not dramatic as far as man is concerned, but I guarantee you it's dramatic in heaven. Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, I tell you there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you have a conversion story? If so, all the elements will be there. You understand that you were separated from God because of sin. You know that you felt the guilt and the just condemnation that sin brings. You remember how in your distress you realized there was no reconciliation to God apart from trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And though you may not recall the exact minute, or maybe not even the exact, exact day, you know, if you are a Christian, that at some point, by calling on the name of Jesus to rescue you, you stepped from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God's truth became your truth. There's your story. And if that's the case, tell others about it. Share it. Tell them your story. Don't share your truth. Share God's truth. Share God's truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that each of us that know you, that are in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that we each have our own story that you have woven into the fabric of our lives. And we just ask that you would help us to share it.
as we proclaim your truth according to your word. And Father, help us as we respond to those at times who misunderstand or who speak in ignorance or who lash out, help us to respond in a way that's pleasing to you in a, play that, in a way that glorifies the Lord Jesus. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.